All right, well, good morning, Village Church. Good morning. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. I have the joy to open up God's Word. Uh, Would you open up your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 45? We've been in the book of Genesis. I think we counted 15 years now, and we're getting... (laughs) We're getting to the end. We're like so close. We're almost there, but we are in the life of Joseph, and the life of Joseph takes us to the very um, end of this book. And so we, uh, I got to just tell you from a personal uh, perspective that it's kind of exactly what I've needed. Have you ever felt like the Word of God just meets you? Uh, so many different life circumstances, so many frustrations and trials, and the Word of God just has this way of bringing life and perspective. And so I pray that even this morning, I don't know who you are, a lot of you, I don't know what you're going through, but I pray that God's Word uh, intervenes in your life and that it is helpful and it draws you to Christ and helps you become more like him. So Genesis 45, uh, I want to start with a question as we so often do. Um, This question, how you answer this singular question, will determine eventually the following things. How you answer this question will determine eventually your spiritual maturity. It will eventually determine your ability to handle trials to the glory of God. Uh, And I want you to hear me. It will definitely determine your ability to endure in the faith. So no pressure. You guys ready for the question? (laughs) No? All right, let's go home. Um, Can I give God the benefit of the doubt? Can I give God the benefit of the doubt? I have watched many, many, many people fall away. And eventually they get to this place where they say, I can't trust you any longer. They don't know all the facts, but they just know they've had enough. Enough is enough is enough. Now let's let's define our terms for a moment, make sure we're on the same page. The benefit of the doubt is a counterintuitive decision. I want to be clear and I want to empathize with every one of you. Uh, Giving someone, let alone God himself, the benefit of the doubt is not natural, it is not easy, and it is against every impulse in most people's body. But I'm telling you this, that if you don't learn this skill, if you don't build this muscle, you will not endure to the very end. So let's go on. The benefit of the doubt is a counterintuitive decision to believe the best about someone despite how things appear. The benefit of the doubt, it is not naive. It seeks to believe when we lack the information we need. And I don't know about you, but as I think about my relationship with God, I lack a lot of information. I lack a lot of whys. What are you up to? How is this going to come full circle? Why did you? How could you? Is there a point? Like these are human questions. I ask them, you ask them. And it it takes an incredible, I want you to hear me, an incredible amount of emotional and mental durability to do this over and over and over again. 1 Corinthians 13 uh, actually has this beautiful line about love. And here's what it says. Love believes all things. This is the benefit of the doubt verse, that if there's going to be an actual love relationship between two people, love must believe all things. And and this is where the Christian is tried regularly with God. We lack pertinent information or what feels like pertinent information, and we have to believe that he is good, 
that he is not random, arbitrary, aloof, falling asleep, or whatever else it is. Like, we have to believe to the core of our being, even though I cannot see for a moment how this comes full circle, I am confident that you are the God who is good, righteous, sovereign, in control, merciful, and gracious, and you waste no pain. Like, there's not one thing that you will waste in this entire world. I have to believe that to the core, uh, but here's the challenge. When you're in it, giving God the benefit of the doubt, it's excruciating. It's excruciating. Now, Joseph is going to make one singular decision, I believe, behind the scenes of all of this narrative that is going to be a game changer for his relationship with God. And I really believe that this decision made by Joseph over and over and over again to give God the benefit of the doubt is why God could promote him to the position he eventually found himself in. So in Genesis 45, you might be new to the story, new to the Bible. Uh, What I want to do is give you just a a little bit of overview, but I can't, I really can't tell you everything. So I want to just encourage you, read Genesis 39 to 45. If you're really bored in the sermon, you can do that right now, and then you'll be caught up. But Joseph, he's obviously the center of attention in the story. And Joseph went through an incredible amount of pain. Can we all agree on this? Not because of anything he had done wrong, personally, which sometimes is the worst kind of pain when you truly are, in the most pure sense of the word, a victim. You didn't do anything to deserve it, but life just happened to you, and these things just happened to you. Joseph has experienced jealousy that has led to hatred, and eventually his brothers beat him and were going to murder him. They left him in a pit for dead. Well, then they had a bright idea. They said, we can make money off this guy. Let's go do that. Soul discouragement on levels I am confident no one in this room has experienced. And if by chance you have experienced soul discouragement, man, I would love to just pray with you and hear your story and understand it because I've yet to meet anybody who's gone through something like Joseph. The feeling of abandonment by God, which is miserable enough, let alone the reality of abandonment by blood, by your very own brothers. Joseph has experienced the deepest levels of betrayal, letdown after letdown after letdown after letdown. In fact, um, the story is really hard to just, just to read when you hear about the discouragement. Now, what happened is in an unreal turn of events, he went from being a slave, imprisoned, to being the second most powerful man in the world next to Pharaoh. Like, all in a day, he wakes up one day, and he's like, oh, just another day, year after year, year after year, year after year, and then he wakes up one day, unexpectedly finds himself in control of the entire world, living only under the authority of Pharaoh, who, by the way, didn't care at all what Joseph did. Now, is that a turn of events that you've ever seen? Maybe you wake up one day, and you're like, wow, I'm the president of the United States. How did that happen, right? Only God could do something like this. Now, here's the, here's the challenge. With power comes the ability to take vengeance. This dude has, I want to say it again, all of the power in the world. And here's the question that the first time reader of Genesis, when you get to 45, here's what you're asking. Will he use the power for vengeance or for good? Now, you guys have the, you've had the perk. Like, you've heard the story. 99% of you in this room know how this ends. You know that he's a good guy, right? But I want you to imagine you're reading this book for the very first time. Maybe you're a mother or father reading it to your child, and they're hearing it, and they're wondering, what is Joseph going to do in this circumstances? Let's think about this. 
If you came face to face with your brothers who beat you to a pulp, ignored your pleas to stop it, to have mercy on you, left you in a pit for dead, and then thought they could make money off of you, so they sold you into slavery, stealing the greatest years of your life, and you now had all the power in the world, how many of you would be tempted to kill them? No one's going to raise their hand, are you? Is there any honest people in this room? We got one honest person in the back, and I am grateful for you. His boss, Potiphar. Wow, all of a sudden, Joseph's in charge. Guess who's in control and has all of the power in the world now? Joseph. What about his wife? Remember that? She lied about him. She put him back into prison. She, she made his life terrible. If you were Joseph, would you want to make things right with Potiphar's wife? I sure would. What about the cupbearer who forgot him? Two years sitting there. He knew Joseph was innocent. He had access to Pharaoh. He could have represented him, and he forgot him, left him in prison for two more years. And there's more, I'm sure. And the question as you get to this is what's, what's the man going to do? Would Joseph, I want, you to hear, I want you to hear how this is framed, would Joseph give God the benefit of the doubt that he's got this, or would he take it into his own hands? Could Joseph step back and believe that Yahweh, the God that he has worshipped, it seems up to this point, would he trust and believe that God was going to make things right in his time, or is he going to take control of this and execute vengeance and justice on his own? And here's what you're wondering. Where is Joseph's relationship with God really? Okay, he's endured a lot, but this is going to be the ultimate test. So Genesis 45, verse 1, the brothers have been standing before Joseph. He has tested them to see if they are still scumbags, and they are actually passing the test. They don't seem to be the same men who threw him in jail way back when, and so his heart is torn. And here's what it says. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. Now, here, here's what happens. Like, you're there, you're with your brothers, they finally come back, and, and if you're the brothers, like, this dude just keeps crying. Like, you don't know that it's Joseph. They don't know that it's him. They see this Egyptian ruler, the second most powerful person in the world, he smells like an Egyptian, he talks like an Egyptian, he eats like an Egyptian, he dresses like an Egyptian, he walks like an Egyptian, Bengals 1980-something, you guys with me? <laughs> right? Like, for all practical purposes, this dude is an Egyptian, and they have no categories whatsoever of the man who is standing before them. But I, I want you to hear this. Almost every time he stands in front of them, Joseph starts weeping. And they're like, this guy is really emotional. Like, Egyptians are kind of strange. And I'm like, yeah, I think they are. Benjamin, isn't this kind of strange? Yeah, he cries. Verse 1 goes on. It says, he cried. Make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Big surprise, verse 2, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Now there are three separate instances so far where Joseph has cried or wept aloud. The first one is when he really comes face to face with them for the first time. It's been many, many, many years. He's a brand new man. They have no idea again who he is, and so he puts him in jail. 
And we don't totally understand, is he putting them in jail because he doesn't know what to do? Is he putting them in jail because he doesn't trust them? But all we know is he, he needs them secured and he needs, he needs time to grieve. And so he puts them in jail and he weeps and wails. Then the second time he cries, he's, he cries after and as he's testing them. And it's just bringing up all of this past pain and this wound. And, and he had no idea how huge it was inside of him. The third time he cries, and you're going to see this because he's going to forgive them. Now, if my, my wife actually one of these days may come up and just grab the microphone and tell a story from her perspective. So ask my wife about what I want to share with you now from her perspective. Um, if you guys ever noticed this really terribly ugly scar on my wrist, right? It's really ugly. But people ask me all the time, what happened with this? And, and obviously I had surgery. But what happened when I woke up from the surgery was surprising to everybody. So I woke up from the surgery wailing, weeping, tears, just... And I remember waking up, and again, I was in like a drug-induced state, so nothing was clear. All that was clear to me was that there was the deepest sadness that had lingered over my soul that I'd ever experienced wailed. My wife walks into the building, and she hears this crying, and she's like, oh, it seems to be that person. But then she comes around, and she sees that it's me, and she opens the door, and it's, so she says to the nurse who's behind me, she says, what's happening? Is he okay? And she's like, I have no idea. <laughs> and I, so apparently this had gone on for goodness, I think at that point over an hour, and apparently the weeping lasted for over two hours. This is like real. So she says to me, she's like, oh, are you in pain? I'm like, no. You know? She's like, what's, what is this? And, and she says, well, what's wrong? And I'm like, Someone died! <laughs> Tears just soaking wet. And she's like, who, who died? I don't know! <laughs> well, how do you know someone's dead? I feel it! She's like, what? I'm here! I know it! You know, and like, she tells the story like, what is wrong with this guy? Right? And uh, I remember coming out of it, and I was like, wow, that is the deepest sadness. But it's interesting, just even trying to diagnose tears when you don't know what's going on, that, like, that, that is a challenge. She's sitting there trying to discern, and, and mine apparently were tears of grief for all the people who had died in that, like, two-hour period. I don't know. But it was a really intense moment. But just even identifying tears, it's a really challenging thing. Uh, the amount of times I see people cry, and I'm like, are you angry? Are you sad? Are you rejoicing? Are you convicted? Um, are, like, are you just tender? Like, what, what is the emotional state going on? And the brothers, I want you to just get this. Like, the brothers do not understand this man. He has cried multiple times and seemingly without purpose or understanding and acted in very strange ways to them so far. And they're just like, well, here he goes again. Here's the crier, king of the universe. Here we are. <laughs> Verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, and this is where, like, it's just kind of like this, I am Joseph. Now he's speaking in their language. Before, he'd only speaking in Egyptian, and they were speaking in Hebrew, and they didn't know that he understood them, and so he finally brings out his identity. I am Joseph, and listen to the first question that he asks. Is my father still alive? Like, 
his dad and him, Jacob, had a profoundly beautiful relationship. Now, unfortunately, dads don't ever do this. Don't pick a favorite, right? But it happened. And so Jacob loved Joseph more than all of the other brothers. And, and, and Joseph had all of these dreams and aspirations and love for Jacob and appreciation and wanting to run the family business, so to speak. And, and all of that was stripped away from him in just a moment. And here's his first question. How is my dad? But his brothers, they couldn't answer them for they were dismayed at his presence. What would you think if you were the brothers and you're sitting across from the most powerful man in the universe next to Pharaoh and he tells you, it's me. (laughs) What do you think is going to happen? You think this is going to be the end, right? And if it were any other person in charge in this country or empire, these guys would have been dead. Joseph has had a, a very challenging, I'll just say, experience so far. And one of the things Chris uh, identified last week in his sermon was that it's really tempting to make Joseph a one-dimensional character. And it's really easy to read these, these people and just think they're super simple. Like if somebody were writing a book about your life, wouldn't you want to chime in a whole bunch and make sure they understood, no, it's just not that simple? And so um, one of the things we see with, with Joseph, as he said, is, is, is Joseph has just adopted the entire Egyptian lifestyle. Not only that, but Joseph has married a pagan cult priestess from Egypt, and he is now having children with her. And so when he has these kids with her, you're like, okay, wait a minute, do you worship Yahweh or why are you married to this pagan cult priestess? Like, what's, what's happening here? And then when they have kids, on the surface, you're like, he has set aside all of his Jewish heritage and background. But then when they have kids, you would expect that what he would do is he would give them uh, Egyptian names. But he doesn't. He gives them Jewish names. And the names communicate basically this. The Lord has taken away all my pain. The Lord has given me a brand new start. And so you're reading Joseph, and one of the questions you're trying to deal with as the reader in this is, where is Joseph spiritually? When he was in prison, he was worshiping Yahweh, but now he's out of prison. He's got all this power and wealth and opulence and money and and everything and authority. Did he change? Like, what's really happening? Is he going to become Egyptian even in the way that he's going to dispense justice? That's what we're waiting to find out. Verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and then he said this, I am your brother Joseph, I don't know the tone here, I'm going to guess, whom, whom you sold into Egypt. Was that it? Like, I, I don't know what tone to give this, but all I know is if it stopped here, probably your best guess would be something really not great is going to happen to these brothers. Now, if you just pause for a moment, and you went back in time just a little, a little bit, and before, let's say, the day before the brothers showed up, and you would ask Joseph the following question. Tell me about the character of your brothers. Here's what he probably would have said. They are low-life scum, they're dirtbags, and they deserve to die. That might be what he said. But we're getting actually a very different picture. He's actually had time to test them to see what they're really made of. He's had time to figure out what their heart is really, what's really going on inside of their heart. And the brothers, again, they're still trying to figure out, like, what kind of tears are these? And now Joseph has a decision. I think this is really important. If you haven't been with us in the last um, month or so, I want to bring you back to a discussion that we had about Joseph. Joseph has a decision. Will he be a victim 
or an overcomer. Like this is, this is huge. Victim is, this, is this, this identity that you take on when something bad happens to you, when you have been victimized. To become a victim is this identity where we just, we take this on, woe is me, and it results almost always instinctively in self-loathing and in punishment to others, either passive, aggressive, or passive aggressive. And it becomes your identity. When people ask about who you are, you immediately go to your experience of what has been done to you. And this is the path of least resistance. And Joseph in this moment would have every right to play the victim card because was he victimized? The answer is yes. But Joseph doesn't play the victim card here. He actually plays the overcomer card. And I want you to understand this. The fight of an overcomer is forgiveness and optimism. And I want you to see the distinction between the instinct of the victim versus the fight of the overcomer. And I do not for one moment want to mitigate anybody's pain or hurt or experience in this room. But I do want to say the path of least resistance is always victimhood. The fight for the mature believer is towards overcoming. And the overcomer is, first of all, willing to dispense forgiveness. And when they look at trials, they believe that there is a God, the God they serve, who never wastes pain and always brings everything full circle eventually. This is a very different mindset, and and this is the mindset of the mature believer. I want you to look at the benefit of the doubt that Joseph gives to God as an overcomer. He says this, and now... Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. I don't know if that's what I would say to, to my brothers. Hey, guys, don't feel bad at all. I mean, you just like threw me in a pit. No big deal. Beat me to a pulp. And I pleaded with you. I was like, don't, don't. You're like, ah. And then you're like, ah, let's go sell them for money. And then you ruined my entire life and stole my best years. Don't feel bad at all, guys. Like, would any of you say that to them? No, you want them to feel the weight of their pain. But here's what Joseph knows. They've spent the last decade plus feeling and living under the weight of the guilt and the shame, that has been punishment enough. He's heard them talking. Again, they don't know that he knew their language because they didn't know it was Joseph. He heard them talking and he hears their guilt and their regret and their shame and the lies and everything that they've done. And so Joseph's gotten to this point where he's like, you know what? These guys have been tormented and punished, but he says, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves for God sent me before you to preserve life. Now, if you're the brothers, your immediate thought is, um, no, we definitely did this to you. I don't know that it was God. Like, you think God would do that? That's, that's insanity. Like, you know, we did, we're pretty sure we're the ones who sold you. It's, and here's what he's doing. He's giving God the benefit of the doubt. Now, Joseph has the privilege at this point to watching it come full circle, Right? It's a lot easier to give God the benefit of the doubt when you see the whole game, right? But what he's doing here is he's saying this. He's saying, listen, guys, I get it. You had one thing in your mind. You had one motivation. You had all this stuff. But God is in control. And I want to I tell you this. I don't want you to gloss over this. I, wanna, I don't want to just use good old Christian language. I want you to hear me on this. There is nothing ever that happens anywhere that is not allowed, ordained, or permitted by God himself. That is not determinism or fatalism. There is just nothing. There is nothing that happens that God did not ordain, allow, or permit. There is never a moment where God's like, oh my gosh, I didn't see that coming. What am I going to do? Let's pick up the pieces and fight for this, ever. 
We have a sovereign, in-control God who simultaneously, if you knew what he knew and you saw what he saw, is without flaw, error. There is no sin. There is no lack of wisdom or knowledge. And there's never once a mistake that he has ever made. And so Joseph is coming to grips with this. And I don't know when he got to this point, but here's where he is at right now. Listen, God was up to something the whole time. Like, I couldn't see it in the moment. I couldn't see it in jail. I could not see it. But now I'm staring at you, all my brothers, and all of you would be dead with your wives and your children and your children's children and my father and my beloved little brother. All of you would be dead if I wasn't here. And somehow, I don't don't get this, somehow Joseph can get to a point where he says, if it all had to happen like this again for you and for your benefit and for your salvation, then this is the plan of God. I am his servant. My body is his body. My dreams are his dreams. My life is his life. You do with me what you have to do. And if it means doing this to save all these lives, somehow Joseph would do it again. I want to read you a passage from Romans 12. And uh, even though the Apostle Paul wrote it, I feel like these words could just be straight out of Joseph's heart. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Our God is not ambivalent, aloof, distracted. He will deal with everything in the right way at the right time. He says, for it is written, vengeance is mine. God is possessive about vengeance. Small vengeance, big vengeance, everything in between. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. I have it. Trust me. Give me the benefit of the doubt. I know you can't see it. I know it's not happening in your time frame. I know the things aren't happening the way you want them to happen. And the Lord is regularly intervening with the people of God saying, relax. That's my job. Let me tell you your job. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, you feed him. And if he is thirsty, Give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I don't don't want you to just miss what Joseph is able to do. He is able time and time and time again to get to the point where he can give God the benefit of the doubt and believe that God is up to more than what he can see. Now, I want to ask just a a personal question to each one of you. Whose future salvation hinges on your present imprisonment? Whether it's a metaphorical prison or you actually go to jail, let let me just put it this way. I want to know that God, you will not waste one ounce of my heartache or pain. And for the love of God, you better capital B-L-E-S-S-E-D exclamation point someone, right? They better be blessed from this because if this is just all wasted and it's just for not, like I, 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 that's going to aggravate me to no end. And so here's what happens. Like somehow the mature believer, particularly, hear me, when something is done to us and we're innocent and we are victims in the truest sense of the word, when we didn't see it coming and something happens to us and it unravels our entire world, I need to know that God will not waste this. I need to know that one day, somehow, this is going to come full circle and I'm going to be able to look at somebody and I'm going to be able to bring measurable, life-changing joy and comfort because God didn't waste my pain. He didn't waste what was done to me. I have to know that. 
And Joseph is finally seeing this. God is not wasting one single experience in his life. So whose future salvation hinges on your present imprisonment? You can't answer it. One day you will. Verse six, for the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God, this is Joseph to the brothers, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. You would all be dead if God didn't allow this. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Verse 80 goes on. He has made me a father to Pharaoh. We don't know who the Pharaoh was, but we know there are multiple Pharaohs who are very young in age. Joseph at this time is probably a little bit younger than I am. And so whatever his relationship with is to Pharaoh, it's likely the Pharaoh is younger. Uh, it's likely the Pharaoh is, is looking up to Joseph and sees him like a father. And that's an incredible amount of authority and responsibility. It says this, he has made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You should dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And the brothers now realize there is nothing our God cannot do. I mean, could you just imagine them? The shock, the awe, the mercy and now the grace of Joseph to them. This is unimaginable. Verse 14, then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. Don't for one moment think that any of the words that Joseph is saying are with dry eyes. They're not. This is emotional and gut-wrenching on every level. He fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept and Benjamin wept upon his neck. First time Joseph wept, it was because he had undealt with past trauma, for sure. The second time, because the weight of that undealt with trauma finally caught up to him. The third time he wept was out of forgiveness to his betrayers. And the fourth time is as a celebration of restoration. All tears. It's a lot of different kind of tears this man has shed in a very short period of time. Verse 15 says, and he kissed all of his brothers and he wept upon them. The ones who threw the punches, the ones who kicked, the ones who left them there, every one of them weeps upon them in an act of restoration. And then there's this like, I don't know, I laughed out loud when I read this line. And after this, the brothers talked with him. It was cool. Hey man, how's your week going? Oh, it's all good. How's your week going? That's good. Tell me what's up. How's dad? Yeah, good. Benjamin, you're doing good. What's life like? What are you doing for a living now? Okay, cool. That's, that's what I read into this. And of course, they have a lot to catch up on. 
When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers have come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Now, let's be straight for a moment. Do you think that this is how Pharaoh would have responded? No. But even Pharaoh was like, oh, that's cool. Like, we love movies like this. Like, that, I, that's, I like that. That's, that let's, let's talk about this. I mean, even, even the pagans are watching this and saying, that's admirable. This is cool. Verse 17, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, I'm imagining like an 11-year-old, say to your brothers, you know, like uh, this voice cracks. That was terrible, but you the idea, a little kid. Say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of the land of Egypt is yours. Isn't God always up to something? Like this is like, what, are you kidding me? And imagine you're the brothers, you're like, Pretty sure we thought we were going to die a couple minutes ago, and now you're giving us the best of all the land of the most prosperous nation in the entire world. Verse 21, so the sons of Israel did so. Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh. He gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them, he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. And verse 24 might be my favorite in the whole chapter. Then he sent his brothers away as they parted. He said to them, do not quarrel on the way. Right? I mean, brothers are brothers. I don't care how old you are, quarreling is quarreling. And uh, he probably heard them quarrel amongst themselves why they didn't know he was listening because remember, they didn't know he knew their language. And, and uh, I just imagine all these, like, stop fighting, you guys, you're like children, stop it, you know, and go get my dad. All right. So they went up out of Egypt. They came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. This is a moment, like there's a whole sermon right here that, that I'm going to skip. You're welcome, by the way. I think we'll be here for a long time. There's a whole sermon here because these brothers are now forced to fess up. I mean, just quantify with me for a moment how many lies they needed to tell from tearing up his coat killing an animal, putting blood over it, bringing it home, sending servants before them, telling the dad, living the lie, watching their dad grieve and mourn and wail and lose his joy and life over his favorite son being lost. I mean, this is, guys, this is a lot. So not only do they have to own what they've done to Joseph, now they have to come home and own what they've done to their dad. And they said, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. It feels like a bad practical joke, doesn't it? There's no way. I, I saw the blood. I saw the torn robe. You guys came back to me. You would never do this. Like, what are you, what are you even talking about? You guys, that's ridiculous. It says his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of, the, of their father Jacob revived. And Israel, which is Jacob's other name, said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him before I die to be continued. I want to close with a couple so what's. Will 
I surrender vengeance to God. If you haven't put it together yet, let me put it together for you. The antidote to vengeance is utter confidence that God's got this. Benefit of the doubt, despite what you can't see and what you don't know, God has this. If you can't give God the benefit of the doubt, if you can't take him at his word when he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, you will take vengeance into your own hands. This is what we do. But the person who is able to give God the benefit of the doubt despite what appears, despite how impossible it looks, they will take vengeance. And here what we see is is a challenge. Will you give God the benefit of the doubt? Because he's not gonna tell you how this whole thing is gonna come full circle right away. Eventually, you'll see it. Maybe not even until you get to heaven. But there's something about the mature believer that says this. I'm going to release my impulse to vengeance because I will give God the benefit of the doubt that he is not aloof and that he will act righteously at the right time and the right way. And if I knew what he knew, if I saw what he saw, I would actually do what he does every time. Number two, will I give God the benefit of the doubt? Will I trust that God is working on a greater and possibly better scale than I could ever dream of? Uh, the first question had to do with, will I surrender vengeance? Here's, I'm gonna go deeper. Will I give God the benefit of the doubt? Uh, between this day and the day you die, there will be a lot of transition, trial, and heartache. It will come in all different forms, and you will not get immediate answers right away. Amen from anybody else in this world who's ever lived? Will you give God the benefit of the doubt? I'm not asking, will you let others off scot-free? I'm not asking, will you be naive? I'm just saying, will you not wag your finger at God? Will you trust him that one day this will come full circle and you will declare that he is infinite in wisdom and he is a genius? And finally, number three, meet Jesus, who is a way better Joseph. Joseph is an incredible moral example, is he not? And you see this man who was sent into a living hell and had everything taken from him for the salvation of others. I love what this says in verse seven. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you. Like all of my hell and all of my pain was for you and your physical salvation. But that's, that's where it ends. And what Jesus offers us is even infinitely better because not only does he offer us physical hope of restoration, but he actually, uh, say it this way, went through a living hell where literally the full wrath of God was poured out on his body and soul and emotions for you. So that anybody who would place their faith in Christ, anybody, the better Joseph, the infinitely better Joseph, the one who actually can save anybody who would do that, might actually be saved. I just, I just want to submit to you that there is a God who loves you in all of these stories. I don't ever want to lose this. They stand on their own, and they tell you the story of God. They tell you what he is up to and the preservation of the people of God and how miraculous God is and all of this. But every single one of these virtues and attributes that you see in these men, Jesus is better. 
He is a better physical savior. He's a better spiritual savior. Joseph has no power over the soul. Joseph has no power to actually bring forgiveness between his brothers and God for what they've done. And what every person in this story behind the scenes needs is Jesus, period. Every one of them. Because every one of them, you see, they have fallen short of God's glory and they are sinners and here's what they need. They need forgiveness and it can only be given through faith in Christ. Jesus went through hell for us and for our salvation. And so I could, I would be remiss if I left this sermon and just said, yay, Joseph is a great guy. If I did not point you to our savior, Jesus, and say, do you love what Joseph did for his brothers? What Jesus did for you is infinitely greater. Do you love the mercy and the grace that Joseph gave to his brothers? Are you inspired? I am. I'm reading this. I'm like, gosh, this guy's amazing. I want to be more like Joseph. Put my eyes on Jesus because what Jesus did was infinitely better. Because what the brothers did to Joseph, the hell he endured, is nothing compared to bearing the full weight of your sin on Jesus' body and soul and emotions. The mercy that he dispenses and the grace upon grace that Jesus dispenses is infinitely bigger and more beautiful and more compelling than what Joseph did. And I have a hunch if Joseph was up here and he was telling you his story, he would tell you this story and it would be emotional and you'd be all in and he would close with this. He would say, can I just tell you something? This is nothing. This is nothing compared to what our God has done for you. Your sin separated you from God. You needed salvation and you had nowhere to go and there was only one place to go and it was Jesus and he offered it freely and he gave grace upon grace upon grace after mercy upon mercy upon mercy. And so maybe you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ. You're like, how did he go from Joseph to Jesus that quick? You can take any character, find their attribute and Jesus is better. It's that simple. Maybe you've never, ever trusted in Christ. And I'm telling you, you are in poverty and you have a need because of your sin and it is for forgiveness and there's no other place to go than to Christ. And one of the things you're gonna struggle with is giving God the benefit of the doubt, for sure. I get that. Everyone in this room who's trusted in Christ, we get that. It's a weekly, if not daily decision sometimes. You will never regret trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins becoming his. What I love is that you're given forgiveness, you're given the Holy Spirit, you're given hope. It's just the most amazing exchange. He gets your sin, you get everything he has. That's a pretty great deal, by the way. I want to take a moment and I want to just spend some time praying um, for each one of you and myself because um, the future is only going to get harder. I don't know, for most people, life doesn't get easier, your bodies don't get healthier, right? Just life happens. But what we need to do is we need to be able to give God the benefit of the doubt that he's up to something and he will waste nothing. So I want to take a minute, I want to pray for you. And then um, we're going to have a bunch of kids come in here. I don't know if you know that, but I'm not just wearing this because I'm bored. We're going to be baptizing some people. Uh, Actually, one person in the first service, another person in the second service. And so super excited to hear how Jesus has intervened in their life. Joseph could never do what Jesus did in these people's lives, right? Amen. So let's pray together. Father, we um, are really just profoundly grateful that your word has so specifically communicated the things that we need to hear. Um, We are really tempted to trust in our own wisdom and to believe that somehow we know better, but Lord, we don't. You do. And so God, I pray for myself and for each one of us in this room that Um, Lord, as these challenges in our life come up, would you give us a unique amount of faith in those moments to give you the benefit of the doubt, to trust in your goodness and in your plan, despite the fact that you withhold a lot of those details from us. 
on a regular basis. Thank you for Joseph. I cannot wait to meet him. I thank you that Joseph now knows you by name. And that if you were standing here, he would point us all to you, to the perfect, beautiful, awesome Savior, Jesus Christ. And so God, we love you. Thank you for the baptism that we're about to see in a little while. Thank you for the privilege to worship you. And we do this now in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. I want to ask you to stand. Um, There's a a song that I asked the band to play. The song is called, I'm Going to See a Victory. Some of you have heard it. It's a newer song. Um, But the bridge really takes the hallmark verse of the book of Genesis and Joseph's life. And it repeats it. And here's what it says. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And to even be able to say that is to give God the benefit of the doubt. Because for a lot of you right now, you're not at the end of the trial, you're in the middle of it, and it takes an amazing amount of faith to really actually sing that right now. The chorus, it's actually very simple. And it says, I'm gonna see a victory. But the reason this is so important is because this is an overcomer's prayer. Because it's, it's sung from the perspective of someone who's in it, not somebody who's past it. And so every time you sing that, this is you making a declaration that I am going to give God the benefit of the doubt, that he's up to something and he's not going to waste this. And so what I want to do is I want to just ask you uh, to worship and sing. It's so easy to catch on to, but let this be the overcomer's prayer in each one of us. <laughs>